Welcome, welcome. I'm Gabby. This is the Happier Life Project brought to you by free mental health and wellness app, My Possible Self, in partnership with the Priory Healthcare. In this episode of the podcast, we are tackling the issue of feeling stuck and what we can do to get ourselves out of it. According to theschooloflife.com, many of us spend a large part of our lives in one way or another feeling stuck. Now this is in the state where a strong desire to move forward on an issue meets with an equally strong compulsion to stay fixed where we are. Whether it's in our career, relationships, friendships, family, ambitions, struggles, addictions, we hit this invisible wall and we just cannot see past it. Well, the good news is, according to today's guest, your brain is not your enemy. It's actually on your side. You're not lazy, crazy or unmotivated. And shortly, you're going to find out why. Britt Frank is a licensed psychotherapist and trauma expert. She's also a speaker and an extremely good one, as you're about to find out, and author of The Science of Stuck, Breaking Through Inertia to Find Your Path. In addition to running her own practice, Britt gives lectures on healing and trauma work at different events and festivals. And the things you are going to learn today about procrastination, anxiety, restlessness, boredom, along with simple actionable steps on how to get unstuck will blow your mind. So, ready to find a healthier, happier you? Let's get started. Welcome to the Happier Life Project, psychotherapist, speaker and author of The Science of Stuck, Breaking Through Inertia to Find Your Path, Britt Frank. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about a super, super interesting subject. I've read the book. Well, I actually, I confess I listened to the book because I got it on Audible. And um, so I'm already familiar with the sound of your voice. And um, <laughs> I just want to kick off with even the title of the book and like looking at the words stuck and inertia. And I'll start with a quote that I read from a recent interview with you in Forbes, where you said, I use the word stuck to refer to situations where choice is readily available. So I was like, okay, Britt, let's start there. So we're stuck and we're feeling stuck like there is no choice, but actually there is. Is that what you're saying? Yes. And I think the disclaimer that the work that I do only refers to situations where you have choices is important because often the wellness and mental health world give this very broad, just think positive and mind over mood. It's like, yeah, but what if you're in a country at war or what if you are mm. subject to systemic racism? What if you're in an abusive household? There are larger factors. Sometimes choice is not actually available. Yeah. And so those are not the situations I'm talking about. When I talk about being stuck, I mean, you're in a safe enough environment. I mean, mm. you have clean water and enough food and you're mm. not sleeping out on the street. People who say I have no choice, sometimes that's true. And often it's actually not true. You may not like your choices, 
But if choices are presence, those are the situations that I'm talking with. So if you're mm. saying you're feeling stuck, my thing is, okay, it feels like you're stuck, but let's dive in and figure out what's actually happening because stuck turns into unstuck, not when mm. you reach your goals, but as soon as you take a step in any direction. Mm. So basically this book, it's a research-based neuroscience-based toolkit for breaking bad habits and moving past what's holding you back in life, in relationships, in work. Turning to the definition of the word inertia, that's a tendency to do nothing or to remain unchanged. So basically, I guess the premise of this book is to like give you the tools and you're not as stuck as you think you are. Yes. It's very tricky because if really does feel and again I get this I'm a recovering drug addict I had childhood trauma you know like all kinds of shenanigans of humaning I have great empathy for life being difficult so I'm certainly right. not invalidating right. our pain however often the state of inertia this like free floating unchanging thing is because we don't know that there's changes available. I thought I was crazy. I have since learned since becoming a therapist, there's no such thing as crazy. Even if we don't understand something, that does not mean there's not a really good explanation for it. But you can't break through inertia if you don't know. There are some science-based reasons why you're stuck and there are some science-based tools to get you unstuck. Mm. But everyone wants to be insta-fabulous. Everyone wants the Pinterest board, TikTok, like insta awesome looking life. And that's great. My book is not to get you from stuck to woohoo. It's to get you from stuck to go. Because once you get out of inertia, then you can build up momentum mm -hmm. and then you can create progress. But it's not sexy getting from stuck to go. Like no one is live tweeting that they got out of bed and took a shower. But that's where changes happen at the, like, the first mile, not yeah. the finish line. So I focus yeah. on the first mile. Yeah. Well, I don't know if the first mile is because what you do help with is like maybe you're stuck, but then perhaps going for a new job because it's a, a career-based stuck, or if it's a relationship stuck, not necessarily saying break up with the person, but maybe look at how you can become unstuck there. So, I mean, being stuck can actually make us quite miserable. So I, I would take stuck to go in, in some of those circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, again, my whole work is based on that. But again, yeah. a lot of people minimize and really devalue their baby steps forward. It's like, well, yeah, I went for a walk, but it's not like I ran a marathon. Well, yeah, I got out of bed, but it's not like I applied for 10 jobs and went to a networking event. Mm -hmm. And anytime we devalue those little steps, we're going to stay in inertia. Like we've got to not only do the small things, but celebrate the crap out of them because that trains our brain. Yes, do more of that. And then it compounds. Mm. You touched a little bit on your backstory in terms of not the professional side, and I will go deeper into that on the kind of solo intro to the episode. But um, as we sort of went there from the get-go in terms of your backstory, it is so fascinating. And, you know, because we are a mental health and wellness app, like if you don't, I mean, this is basically on your website anyway, so I'm not going to say anything that's not already as you would call it, the sordid personal stuff. Born and raised in New York, Brit struggled for more than two decades with chemical slash behavioral addictions, eating disorders, depression, anxiety, OCD. You might have to help me with the pronunciation of this one. Trichotillomania. Trichotillomania. Yes, I've never yes, heard that's of that. The hair, that's the hair pulling one. That's oh. where you compulsively 
an, from an anxious place, sort of compulsively pull out your hair. Oh, right. That's a thing. Thank you. Okay. Crazy making relationships and complex PTSD. Eventually she found her way out of that mess with a lot of help and a brief stint in a religious cult and became a therapist. Drops mic. Right. I mean, you had me there. I'm like, okay, this lady is, is super interesting. And, um, I guess kind of this backstory is like your, your superpower for your, how empathetic you are and how, you know, grounded you are, especially when I guess, I think this happens a lot, maybe when people are going to see a therapist and it, they're becoming uncomfortable because they may want, not want to talk about certain things or they might, you know, sometimes it's easier to like vent or lash out maybe at the person sat in, in your chair and they might be like, well, what do you know? What does that person know about them? But actually you've ticked quite a few boxes there, Britt. <laughs> you do know. <laughs> I, you know, I don't claim to know everything about, I mean, I know what it's like to be me, but I have done so many really bad things and have been witness to so many bad, like nothing really shocks me. And I'm not boundaryless in how I practice. I'm very open. Like you said, that's on my website. Like, yay, I smoked meth. Yay. I did this and this and that. But I think it's important to know that the therapist that you're going to may not need to have your experience, mm. but at least has I go to a therapist who has had different stuff, but I don't want to go to someone that's never known what it's like to be in such a state of shame that it felt like there was no way out. And I'm not saying that like you can't be helpful to humanity if you've had a good childhood, like that's cool. But for me, I think the people that I work with know nothing is really going to shock me or make me go, (gasps) because I know what it's like to be on the, I hated when I told a therapist what I did. And my therapist was like, (gasps) clutches at the pearl necklace it's like shut up it's like no I I don't want that yeah I'm very open yeah I've been down some rabbit holes yeah I mean I don't want to go too much down this rabbit hole but I have to ask and I'm sure anybody else in my position would want to ask what's it like living in a cult (laughs) yeah I I get asked that a lot the thing with cults is that they're not all like not all cults are murder cults And not all cults are sex cults. There are a lot of flavors of cult life. And so the one I was in was not a sex cult, nor was it a murder cult. Okay. Now it was a very, very extreme religious cult. So what was that like? To be totally honest, it was a resting place. Mm. I am not advocating for cult life. It is a terrible place to go. For Mm. me, it was a resting place. It was a resting place from drugs. It was a resting place from crazy making chaotic relationships Mm. because I had a brief period of time where I was told, do this, wear this, think this, read this, eat this, and you're going to be good. And it had the unintended benefit of getting me off some other addictions. Mm. And then of course that's not sustainable. So I very quickly went on to other things, but for me, cult life was, I get the appeal. It's a wonderful way to avoid who you are, what you are, what you think and what your pain is to be told, just do this and you're fine. Thank you. Sign me up. I don't have to deal with my feelings. Just if I have a bad thought, just pray it away. And any bad thing in me is just a demon that I need to slay. Like sign me up. And again, I'm not making fun at people's belief systems. I'm not not here to say evil spirits are real or not real. Like, I don't know. I just know that for me, no, that was not a demon monster. That was just, I'm angry. Okay. That was just, I'm sad. Like, Mm. okay. And so 
short answer. Cult life was an interesting resting place from drugs and sex addiction. Wowzers. Well, you found your way as you put it out of that mess. I mean, you know, last question on the sort of backstory. That is no mean feat, Brit. So, I mean, every credit to you, but like, how? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't, this is why the disclaimer that you need to have, like trauma can heal only to the degree that you have access to resources. So I did not just magic my way out of that. I yeah. was in a privileged position where I could afford to go to therapy mm -hmm. and I had access to good treatment and some, you know, things that worked in my favor. So I can't be like, I did it all by myself. It's like, I had a lot of help and I had the ability to access that help. How did I do it? Honestly, I got to a place where it was, if I keep down this path and it was a domestic violence relationship mixed with methamphetamine, I was not going to survive another six months of that story. Yeah. So it, I don't think everyone needs a dramatic pivot. But for me, it was like, I need to do something different or I'm I'm not going to live. And at the time, I didn't feel like dying. Wow. So. Is this why then the treatment was obviously very effective? And it, was this what inspired you to then want to go on to help others? <laughs> the treatment was not effective. It was not like a, oh. now I'm done and off I go into health no but you're like, still here and you're thriving from the looks of it so <laughs> something worked i am now but it was like a, a a spiral it was like i chose to take a step forward and not die that day but then it was a couple of months of shenanigans and then it was a couple of months of moving forward and then mm. it was screw it i don't want to do this anymore and i'm just going to sit on my butt and just do nothing and i mean i worked but like i'm not going to do any self-work or healing work i'm just going to sit and stare at the wall Mm. Um, so it was a lot of meandering through the woods mm. and I just kept going and eventually I got my feet under me and then I got into the helping profession, not because I wanted to help, but just because I love this stuff. I love this information. I love knowing how our brains work because it's so useful to know this because life gets better and I'm not like that nice that I just want to be helpful. I just like doing this work and talking about it. <laughs> I'm sure you find it rewarding now though, right? <laughs> yes, that is true. Yes. But it's, I think when helping professionals focus too much on the helping, that turns into some not so good things. But if you're doing this work because you love it, you're going to be helpful. And that's like helpfulness is the secondary benefit, not the primary motivation, I find. Right. Okay. Well, Back to the science of stalk. <laughs> by the time this, <laughs> by the time this airs, we'll be hitting the one-year anniversary mark from its release. So yay! And again, congratulations because there's been a lot of noise about this book, and you seem to have found an area that it's like it resonates with so many people. Not just like I mean, the reviews and the and the people in the professional aspects journalists, um, colleagues, you know, world-renowned therapists and psychotherapists, everybody's raving about the book and I've listened to it now so I can see why. Were there moments where you felt stuck writing it? Parts of me really want to be like it was a tortured, arduous process, but like my life experience was a tortured, arduous process. Writing the book was joyous. And I mean, it was hard. It was crying and I suck and I can't do this and blah, blah, blah. But overall, the, the 
process was really joyful. I loved taking all of the little bits of info I had gathered. It was like a giant show and tell for me. So being able to gather all of the research that I love and all of the people whose resources helped me and put it together. I had a lot of fun writing it. So I don't have the tortured writer story. (laughs) Were you sort of sat on the idea for a while? Were you like, this is something I, I know there's a book in there. It's a big thing, as you know, to write a book, right? Or was it something that literally fell out of you and it all kind of happened quite quickly? Since I was little itty bitty, I've always wanted, I think everyone has a book in them. Since Mm. I was a little kid, I would like make fake books and Stapleton together and write little, you know, I've always loved writing. This book came because I started writing on Instagram because no one will listen to you or publish you if you don't have any type of platform. And so no one would give me the time of day. So fine, I'm just going to write my thoughts out on Instagram. And after a few years of that, I realized I had amassed sort of the building blocks of a book. Mm -hmm. And I looked at, you know, the thousand posts I'd written and I'm like, oh my God, like this is a book. I just need to, not just, but I need to take all of these concepts and organize them into categories. But I have the research here for a book. Then it took me three years to get a literary agent and then another two years before, I mean, it's a long process Mm. and hundreds of rejections. But I knew after a few hundred Instagram posts that I was like, I have like enough content here that this could be a book. And um, someone asked me, this was like a business person, what do you do for work? Like, what's your elevator spiel? What's, what do you do in a nutshell? I'm like, I help people with the science of stuck. He's like, that's a book title. I'm like, holy shit. Like, yeah, it is. Grew from there. Love it. Okay, well, just to kind of give people some golden nuggets from yourself in terms of in the science of stock. Actually, before we go into that, I, I found this quite interesting stats um, from LinkedIn. Uh, it was a report from last year when explored what percentage of people feel stuck. I don't know if you caught this one. But... I didn't. Okay. So many reported feeling trapped. The poll also indicated that 76% of respondents feel stuck in their personal lives. 31% are apprehensive about their futures. 27% are locked in the same routines and they are lonelier than ever before was 26%. And then the kind of summarization was the global workforce feels lonely, disconnected and out of control. According to the research, 75% of respondents feel professionally trapped and say they don't have enough opportunity to advance their professions. 25% are too overwhelmed to make any adjustments. Sorry, that was 22% are too overwhelmed to make any adjustments. Feeling trapped in their employment is spilled over into people's personal lives. That was by 70%. 40% said negatively influencing them by generating extra stress and worry, leading to feeling stuck personally. I mean, obviously with LinkedIn, it's concentrating on the work side of stuckness. That's quite sad. I mean, not too surprising, especially after the pandemic, right, as we're coming out of that. What are your thoughts to those stats? I get them. And it's one of the reasons that I'm so big on speaking out is that the stuckness does not mean that it's a personal failing. And I know because I sit with people day in and day out who that the stuck statistics are not the problem. Mm -hmm. The problem is that people believe that they are stuck because there's something wrong with them. Something is broken about them. There's something Mm -hmm. deficient about them. 
And it's like, if you understand how your brain works, you'll know that's not laziness. That's a brain shut down in a fight, flight, freeze response. That's not lack of motivation. That's, and again, I'm not excusing it. Mm -hmm. I'm saying, if you understand the factors leading to your stuckness, you're going to feel less helpless. And you're going to feel, again, to the degree that you have choices, Mm -hmm. you're going to feel less helpless and less overwhelmed. But for me, when I didn't know I had choices, because I didn't realize I had a brain and that brains do brain things, I just thought this is my lot and this is what I get and this is it. Mm -hmm. And that's not always true. At the heart of being stuck, something, and correct me if I'm wrong on it as a takeaway from your book, was that a lot of it is unresolved trauma. So would that apply in the workplace as well? So the reason I called the book The Science of Stuck and not The Science of Trauma is because not everyone identifies as being a trauma survivor. And then you get into the semantics. Well, what is trauma? And Mm. I don't I had a good childhood and I didn't have trauma. So I don't even like using the word as it relates to what I do. So is stuckness because of unresolved trauma? Well, that depends on your definition. And if like, let's just call it you're stuck because of both some physiological things, some environmental things, and some belief things. And you can't always change your environment, but you can shift your physiology and you can shift how you think and your mind and your body both inform each other. And so two out of three isn't bad, but does unresolved trauma create a state of stuckness? Yes. Does everyone have trauma? Not everyone has abuse or a bad childhood. I think life is to everyone to a degree but people get so bogged down and that wasn't trauma and that shouldn't be trauma and that's a little t and that's a big t it's like let's just toss the word and just call it you're stuck Mm -hmm. and let's figure out how to get you going not to invalidate someone said to me you know that's really invalidating that you're saying throw trauma out the window i'm like i'm a childhood sexual trauma and adult sexual assault survivor i'm not invalidating pain or the reality that really bad things happen. I'm saying we get bogged down in debating the word and we miss out on the healing. So Mm. let's just call it you're stuck. There's a way to get unstuck and let's find it. In the book, you shared some really useful examples in terms of like identifying things maybe from our past or just kind of signals that we might not have even thought of before because they don't, like you said, qualify I'm trying to be careful with my words, but as, let's say, trauma, yeah. Um, Could you share a couple of those examples? I mean, there was quite a big list in terms of, like, what could potentially be a sign that there's something unresolved there and that's why we're feeling stuck now. Sure, and... You know, there's trauma, there's traumatic events. Not everything that's traumatic is going to traumatize you. You could also be traumatized by things that aren't necessarily considered traumatic. It all gets very confusing. Yeah. And so it's really helpful to know if you're stuck, does that mean now we have to dive through your childhood and look for false hidden, hidden memory? No, like we don't have to dig around in your childhood. But if you're stuck, if despite your best efforts, things are not changing, Mm -hmm. can we just assume that something less than optimal may have happened that created the pattern? You don't have to dive through it and you don't have to relive it all, but it can be helpful just to start with, well, if I'm this stuck and things aren't changing, it might help to assume perhaps some suboptimal things happened to me as a kid. 
or as a young adult. I mean, puberty is traumatic, just period. But was I traumatized or was I not is not helpful. It's are you stuck? Have your best efforts left you completely in the same place? Well, maybe let's start with some less than awesome things happened and we can work with that. We can move forward with that. Mm. But yeah. Yeah, I found it really helpful as well. One of the takeaways was um, when it came to the like thinking of the childhood stuff and um, your inner child and, and doing that kind of work that you were just like, let's just accept that, you know, childhood is over now. You know, like, do we have to keep going back to it kind of thing if it's something that we can't resolve? And I was like, hmm, yeah. That's the problem though, right? Is if we don't acknowledge that something bad happened in childhood, we don't need to know what it is and we don't need to re-experience it. But if you don't acknowledge that I had some things in childhood that were painful, then you're never going to be able to move out of it because parts of you will always be stuck on this loop of please see me, please validate me, please witness me. Mm. And so failure to acknowledge our past keeps us stuck there. What gets us moving is acknowledging, okay, it wasn't perfect. It wasn't horrible, but some bad things happened. Okay. And so if we don't acknowledge truth, we're going to get stuck in that time period. Right. I think you used, I don't know if it was a quote from somebody else or it was your words, but about it could be basically anything that's where we felt less than nurtured, which is so important as a kid. But yeah, it could just be the fact that we got ignored a bit or something. And I'm not poo-pooing that. Right, right, right. Now, trauma defined as anything less than nurturing. I didn't come up with that. That's from a treatment facility called the Meadows of Wickenburg, and they're amazing. That definition is very confronting to some people. Anything less than nurturing? Are you just saying that we're all walking around traumatized? No, I'm saying that we all have things that happen, some more severe than others, others that maybe shouldn't seem severe, but they are. Mm. So let's not debate the merits of whose trauma is worse. Let's just look at what's your stuff, what's reality, what is. Mm. You may not have thought it was bad, but like clearly your body thinks it is because you're stuck. So let's just deal with what is so we can move forward versus arguing with ourselves over what are the merits of whether this should count as trauma or not. Your body gets to decide that, not our logical brains. I thought it was interesting that you started the book, chapter one, on anxiety. And obviously, gosh, I mean, that's huge. Who doesn't have anxiety, I think, in this kind of life that we we are living? Feeling stuck and anxiety, how do they go hand in hand? I think the misunderstanding and the myths about anxiety are a huge contributor to why we're stuck. If we think that anxiety is this monster inside our brains that's attacking us, Mm -hmm. just the idea that we're being attacked is going to create an amplified stress response, which is going to make us feel worse. So I don't get nitpicky about the language just to be nitpicky. Mm -hmm. It matters. Anxiety is not something that attacks. I get it. It's awful. It feels like an attack that, you know, quote, panic attacks are awful. I've had them my whole life. But the function of anxiety is to protect us, not to hurt us. If we start with the assumption that our brains are on our side and even our most stressing symptoms are not a sign that we're being attacked, then we're going to be able to get to solutions. But if I'm just like, I have an anxiety disorder, it's like, 
Well, do you, or is your job sucking life out of you? And now you're homeschooling three children during a global pandemic. It's like, is it that you're disordered or is it that right now your environment is chaos and your body is doing what bodies are supposed to do, which is amp up our physiology. So anxiety sucks, but it doesn't attack us. Mm. So I like to call them episodes, not attacks. And also, can we find ourselves maybe as something that's slightly comforting to be stuck in our diagnosis as well because I got diagnosed with a panic disorder because I had really bad panic attacks for many many years and so once I had that label I thought that I was condemned for life you know so that was me prescription meds helped a lot but then I started to explore more through doing this job actually and then I realized I was actually stuck in my disorder and I could get myself out of it. That one's so true. And again, this is kind of like me with my cult days. I have endless compassion on the things that we attach to in our efforts to heal. And I will speak for myself. I have some diagnoses that I clung to because if I identified as having this mental illness, and again, my symptoms were real, my pain was real, my trauma was real. I'm not saying mental illness is not real. That's my disclaimer. So I don't get angry DMs. Mm -hmm. But because I had this label, now there was a community of like-minded people and there was merch and I could lead with, this is who I am. I am someone who has this thing. Right. If that's my identity, then healing is going to be very threatening because if I am no longer, this happened to me with the 12 step world, because when I no longer identified as I am an addict, like, yes, I struggle with addiction. Yes. There are things about me that I will always need to be mindful of. But when I stopped identifying, I am an addict, I lost my community because that was one of the rules is you have to identify Mm. as an addict. And at least in the community I was in. Diagnostic labels are very helpful to help you organize your symptoms and understand what the hell is happening. Diagnostic labels are not helpful if you take it on as an identity instead of a starting point of useful information. For me, my diagnosis for a long time wasn't my starting point. It was my, this is who I am now, not this is what Mm. I'm working with. So Mm. make diagnosis as a starting point, no diagnosis as an end point. (laughs) I've taken it from an article that you wrote for psychologytoday.com. This is a quote from you. If your brain feels unsafe for any reason, including stress, overwhelm, burnout, or trauma, your autonomic nervous system will deploy a fight, fright, freeze response. These psychological survival responses, which serve us well when we are in danger, often get mislabeled as procrastination or laziness. And I kind of wanted to segue with this into procrastination and laziness and and explore that a bit because when I think of the word stuck especially before I read your book procrastination I would say is kind of the wingman I love that and again the 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 word is problematic because when people use it it's I'm such a procrastinator I'm so lazy I just can't get out of this procrastination thing it's like yeah but Your brain is in shutdown. Your brain is in a freeze response. If you just think this is a character thing, like, oh, I just don't have any motivation. I'm such a procrastinator. There's nothing to be done about that. But if you know that you have a nerve in your brain that's shutting your system down, and that's why you can't send that email or get up off the couch, then we can Mm. intervene and do it. It's sort of like um, if my car ran out of gas and I don't know that my car needs gas. I'm just going to sit there on the side of the road going, well, I guess my car just is not working. And then 
this is the way it is and I just leave it. We don't do that. We know if your car runs out of gas, get it to a gas station, fill it up and off we go. And procrastination is an empty gas tank in the brain and there are ways to refill it. But if you don't know that that's a physiological thing, you're just going to think you suck and you don't. Yeah, exactly. That was an aha moment for me. I was like, wow, I just, you know, I'm guilty for procrastinating. And I know a lot of friends and family members would identify as a procrastinator too maybe we're stuck in the identification of being maybe we've labeled ourselves that way and and we just think we are a bit easily distracted by amazon or (laughs) netflix or you know there's so many things you can do rather than get to the tasks that seem quite overwhelming because i think that's when procrastination really rears its head right Yes. And if you can think of procrastination as a fear response and not as just some moral defect, then you're going to be like, instead of, oh, I know I should answer that email, but I'm just procrastinating. That doesn't lead you anywhere. If you say, oh my God, I don't want to answer that email because I'm afraid of what they're going to say. Okay. That we can work with. We can work with Mm -hmm. what that actually is, which is a fear response. But, But people get really angry. They're like, that's stupid. I'm not afraid. There's no reason for me to be afraid. I'm like, there might not be a reason you think you should be. If you are procrastinating, there is a part of you that is afraid. And so let's work Mm. with it instead of fighting it. It's like, no, I'm sorry. You don't suck. You're not lazy. This is a shutdown. We can fix it, but we have to name a problem in order to deal with the problem. We have to frame Mm. it accurately or else we're going to go nowhere. I mean, feeling unmotivated and perhaps bored. Is that the same thing? Because that can lead us to procrastinate, right? Sometimes boredom is a reasonable response to just chronic overwhelm. If you are pounding every single day and grinding and asking your body to ingest information 24-7 and be aware of everything all over the globe and work 10 hours and parent, boredom is going to be a reasonable response to that. Burnout is a reasonable, again, I'm not excusing it. And I'm not saying, guess what? You make sense. Just stay stuck. I'm saying boredom is not because you stink and it's not because you're lazy. Boredom is sometimes a fear response and sometimes it's a burnout response. And both will make sense in context if you get trained yourself to look for that. But everyone asks the same question. Well, I don't understand why. I don't understand why I'm procrastinating. I'm like, you don't need to understand why. Just know because your brain is braining. That's why. Let's focus on choices. And what are your choices? What are you willing to do? You might not be willing to get up, but maybe you're willing to do something smaller. And if we can start making choices, stuck turns into unstuck as soon as you make a choice of any size in any direction. My God, Britt, this is just gold coming out of your mouth. Critical self-talk, what about that keeping us stuck? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's kind of going more down the self-esteem, self-worth, self-confidence routes, but it does all come into play, doesn't it? And people in the business world get a little, you know, they're like, are you just saying we should have compassion on ourselves all the time and be in our feelings and get nothing done? Like, no, that is... That is really not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the type of self-talk, like 
critical awareness is good. Looking at yourself critically with, okay, I could do better here and here are some areas of growth. That's great. But when we talk about critical self-talk, it's more the, you suck, why bother? You're a fraud. There's nothing good for you. If they knew you, they would hate you. I'm talking about that. Mm. That stuff just mm. doesn't work. Like just from it, if, forget about self-compassion and mindfulness and all that stuff, which sidebar is good. But like from an efficiency <laughs> standpoint, when you yell at yourself and you beat yourself up, your brain doesn't differentiate between you doing that and someone else doing that. And so it's going to think it's being attacked and then what does a brain under attack do? It shuts down. So if you're beating mm. yourself up for being stuck, you're going to be more stuck. I'm not saying cosign mm. on it. I'm saying I am stuck because my brain is scared. Why is my brain scared? I don't know because brains are braining. What can I do? What are my choices? What can I say yes to? If you can find, I call it the micro yes. If you can find a micro yes in your situation, you are no longer mm. stuck. Now we can take that little micro yes and build on it and train your brain to get out of that path and start building that path. Your brain is braining. That could be the title for the second <laughs> book, Britt. <laughs> I highlighted a sentence in the book. When you begin to get curious about your inner world, it's often the parts that you hate about yourself the most that are trying the hardest to help you. So it's reframing perhaps that negative voice into a compassionate voice and because it's trying to, as you said, help you have your back. But it just, it's coming out like maybe a stern parent or a critical parent. <laughs> Compassion is not the same as permission. And so there is a way that you can have compassion on yourself without excusing yourself. So I'll use myself. The parts of me that used drugs. I am not saying that that was a good choice. That was an incredibly destructive, terrible choice on a variety of levels. However, the parts of me that went to drugs didn't do it because... I am a terrible person. They chose drugs to protect me because I wasn't dealing with my childhood trauma. And again, it's not an excuse for what I did. I had to spend many years repairing damage that I had done. But if you understand mm. that the function of even bad behavior is self-protective, then we can change it. Now, again, if you are on the receiving end of abuse, no one gets to say to you, well, my parts that are abusing you are doing it to protect me. So you should just be okay with it. I'm not saying that. Um, mm. But for our own self-work, for changing our own patterns, we have to start with the assumption that even our most suboptimal behaviors have self-protective intentions. Then we can help find better ways to do things. Like there's a better way for me to cope with my trauma than meth. I didn't know that at the time. And then I didn't want to know that for a time, but now I know that, but I don't beat myself up. I take accountability mm -hmm. and have compassion on why that happens. It doesn't mean I still do mm -hmm. it. It just means I understand how that happens. Becoming unstuck and breaking from bad habits. I mean, especially like you mentioned, like addiction. I mean, that's one heck of a bad habit to, to crack, isn't it? Any advice there? I mean, addiction, it could be having too much caffeine as well. It doesn't necessarily have to mean crystal meth. I mean, addicted to binge watching TV. But these bad habits, I do think they are a, a crux, aren't they, for this stuckness that we're talking about? 
So Gabor Mate, who I love, I love his work so much. And he always says, don't ask why the addiction, ask why the pain. And so whatever your thing is for me, whether it was drugs or relationships, if it's binge watching or binge scrolling or whatever your thing is, it doesn't have to be like illegal or dangerous. If you're doing it, it's because there's a part of you that's in pain. And again, people are very quick to be like, well, that's dumb. I have everything I need. I shouldn't be in pain. I'm like, okay, well, be that as it may, you are. And if you weren't, you wouldn't have this compulsive behavior. So underneath every problematic behavior is a part of you that's in pain. So we can fight that or we can just go straight to it and address it. But everyone wants to just focus on behavior modification. And so you can you can white knuckle your way through quitting something, through stopping something, through starting something, but that doesn't usually last. So we want yeah. to be able to understand what is bothering you. Forget about whether it should or not. Like what's bothering you? And let's talk about it. So my little takeaways that I have, I've got my like, here are my bullet points. So you get from stuck mm -hmm. to unstuck, whether it's habits or a relationship, whatever. Step one, do not start with why. You don't walk up to a burning building and ask why it's on fire. You get the people out and we'll figure out what mm -hmm. happens later. So everyone wants to start with why am I feeling this? Why am I doing this? Like, don't start there. We'll get there. But we have to start with not why the thing. It's what. Are, so step two, step one, don't ask why. Step two, mm -hmm. ask what are three micro yeses available to me right now? Things I can say yes to today, not after I get the gear, not when tomorrow. Will, like three micro yeses right now of those three. Step three is pick one. So step one, don't ask why. Step two, what are three micro yeses? Step three, pick mm -hmm. one and go do it and then repeat. Mm. As we're starting to wrap things up and you've got full chapters on this in the book and obviously, you know, cannot recommend enough people getting the book, reading it or listening to it, whichever is your preference, because work is such a big one and romantic relationships is such a big one. I don't want to leave any listeners disappointed if I don't ask you about feeling stuck at work. Let's start with that one. And um, as we've talked about, it's getting to the root of feeling stuck. Maybe you just feel unchallenged. Maybe you've been doing the job now for years and the job's never going to change. But maybe, again, then there's all these factors, isn't there? Like job market isn't necessarily great in a lot of different sectors or, you know, there's the fear, isn't there? Because life is expensive. You've got to pay the bills. Maybe you've got a family to support. So you could easily feel stuck in your circumstance so yeah, in terms of like feeling stuck at work, any quick tips there? And obviously there's much more in the book. <laughs> yeah, I love what you said because what to do about your stuckness depends entirely on your choices. For me, I don't have children. When my life burned to the ground, I could scrape by eating gas station hot dogs and like not do a whole lot or go to a lot of places because I didn't have any mouths to feed. And I was willing to spend a few nights sleeping in my car doing this and that. So how to get unstuck depends on your choices. So if you're stuck at work, but you mm -hmm. have kids to feed and an aging ill parent to support, and there are, are no jobs available to you, you're not going to be able to get unstuck at work. Then it's that's not an area we should be focusing on. If you can't change your work situation for legitimate reasons, let's focus on different areas where you can get some momentum. Because the more that we focus on things that we can't change, 
the more we're going to miss out on areas that we can. Your job might suck, mm. but maybe we can beef up interests outside of work and relationships and things that will make you feel less bad about having a crappy job. Maybe it's legitimately that it's time to leave that job and we need to take some risks. So then it's all right. We need to figure out how to make the unknown more known so it feels less scary and less risky. But it always comes mm. back to what's true about the situation. What are my values and what are my choices? Because if I value security and consistency, I'm not going to want to launch a business and that's fine. And so if I value autonomy and other things, that's going to change what my choice points are. But what are my values? What are my choices is better than someone saying, I hate that I'm so stuck at work. It's like, well, are you willing to quit? No. All right. Well, are you willing to speak up? No, my boss will fire me. Okay. If you're not willing to quit and you're not willing to speak up, then this is not the area that we need to focus. Then it's, let's just grieve the fact that your job sucks and let's maybe get some momentum over here. And then maybe if you get momentum over here, that'll change your choice mm. points over at work. Okay. So let's move the momentum over then to your partner, specifically romantically. Maybe you feel stuck because of their behavior maybe it's not your own maybe you like you want to be a bit more adventurous go check out more restaurants more whatever but they're quite a homebody or what's the answer there <laughs> oh that was so tough the answer there if you're already married now if you're dating you you can actually choose to date based on, again, what are your core values? There might be nothing wrong with an extrovert, but if you're a homebody and you expect your partner to be a homebody, you're gonna wanna date from that value. If you're already married to the person, that changes things a little. Mm. And again, it, it comes to really acceptance and what are the factors that you can change. And, you know, I'm an introvert, I'm a homebody. My husband is an extrovert and he loves going to all the places. I don't have an expectation that he should stay home with me and he doesn't have an mm -hmm. expectation that I should go out with him. If we had those expectations, we would have a very high conflict dynamic. But because we've released each other of those expectations, it's very peaceful. It's, hey, I'm staying home. Hey, I'm going out. Awesome. Have fun. And there's no resentment. Mm -hmm. But sometimes mm -hmm. with our partners, we have to either adjust our expectations or get a new relationship. That sounds so cold mm -hmm. and it's easier to <laughs> But it's true. Expectations are half the battle. You know, if I right. stay home, I'd be pissed off and resentful. And it's just not going to change. I'm not going to be an extrovert. and He's not going to be an introvert. And that's fine. There are plenty of yeah. other things that we value about our relationship. That's not that important. So we need to do a real honest inventory of, again, what are my values? And within this romantic mm. relationship, what are my choices? If my partner is not willing to do self-work, not willing to up their communication skills, not willing to quit drinking, my choices are focus on me or leave the relationship. And that sucks, but that's true. Mm. Mm. And then just overall kind of like we're stuck in a rut. So it's not necessarily something that's like super harmful, should we say, but we're just kind of like bored and doing the same thing and... You stress the importance of play. And I've seen on your Instagram, you know, you say, you say you're not much of an extrovert, but then you're flying around with circus folks in the air. So. I don't have to talk to anybody while I'm flying. Circus is great because there's no chit chat. There's no socializing. You're just hanging right. upside down with a bunch of people. It's fabulous for an introvert. Um, if you're stuck in a rut, do 
anything. It doesn't even have to. And again, people get so hung up on, I want to do something that I'm passionate about or that I care about. It's like, if you're stuck in a rut, you just need to change something and do something different. And if you're stuck Mm -hmm. in a dating pattern, but that's not changing, then do something different over here. And again, playing is a very powerful brain hack. I got into circus just because it's the one place where I don't think. Like it's impossible to be that dizzy and nauseous and terrified and (laughs) and anxious. So that's a playful way for me to detach from my life stressors. It doesn't matter what it is. If anytime you do something different, you shake the snow globe of your brain. And that's when things, yeah. that's when things, it's not magic. It's not like, Hey, go do this and everything will be better. It's no, go do this, shake the snow globe, because that's when you can make bigger changes. We have to get unstuck first and then we can do big shifts. Mm, yeah. I remember a yoga teacher saying to me about when it came to headstands, like the great thing about doing a headstand is you have to focus on what you're doing. So all the, you know, the crazy thoughts that never shut up, finally shut up. So I, I'm practicing my headstands, Britt. I love it. It's fabulous. I can't yeah. do those. I tip over very quickly. Yeah, I, I've not mastered it yet, but I'm trying. Final question. <laughs> I ask every guest to set us some homework based on the theme of the episode. So in this case, Britt, what is a simple actionable step we can take when it comes to becoming unstuck that will help us on our mission to building a happier life? Okay. Instead of asking why questions or what should I do? What could I do? Why do I do it? Forget all that. What am I willing to say yes to today? That's the assignment. Find a yes. We all know what we're not doing. We all know that we're not doing stuff we should be and we should be doing stuff or whatever. What are you willing to say yes to today? It doesn't matter how small. It could be that if I'm lying on my couch watching TV, I'm willing to shift and watch TV on my bed, just change up the snow globe. So find Mm -hmm. your yes, no matter how small. What are you willing to say yes to today? Find a micro yes, do it today and repeat. I absolutely love it. Britt, you've been an absolute joy to to chat to. Thank you so much. So for more on you, Instagram is Britt Frank. Website is www.scienceofstuck.com. I cannot recommend enough, as I've already said, getting your hands or ears on a copy of the book. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Oh, thank you again to Brit Frank. It's Gabby back with you. And a big thank you to you, my friend, for listening to this episode of the Happier Life Project. And now on to our important housekeeping. First of all, please note the Happier Life Project and opinions shared by guests is not to be regarded as a replacement for professional medical advice. And if you are suffering with your mental health, there is a crisis button on the My Possible Self app which will signpost you to the correct information for immediate expert advice. Those of you who are listening on one of the podcast platforms, the My Possible Self app is completely free to download. So you don't need to worry about it costing you anything. If you found this episode helpful, please, please subscribe and leave a review. And to find and follow us on social media, we are at My Possible Self and I've been at Radio Gabby. So please do take care and I'll see you on the next one. Bye for now.